0: Now, we are with the children of Israel on the west bank of the Jordan. They've crossed over into the land. Now, there are several things that they did here that we want to note. It's quite possible we might pass over this. We have here, they performed the rite of circumcision, and then the manna ceased, and they began to eat the old corn of the land. And then there was the unseen captain, and Joshua needed this vision at this time. These are the three things that are very prominent here. Now let's notice this, because I think this is very important to see. It came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, Heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. You see, they never thought they would cross over at this time. It would have to be after the flood season was over. The latter rains were at this time. Now will you notice verse 2, at that time the Lord said unto Joshua, make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. Now why was it performed at this time? Well, all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now, all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. In other words, Israel neglected this rite, which was the badge of the Abrahamic covenant, And that covenant, you remember, said that God was to give them the land, you see. They had neglected this, apparently, in the land of Egypt, because we're told here that the reproach of Egypt is to be rolled away. Now, we are told, verse 6, "...for the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed, because they obeyed not." the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land, which the Lord sware unto their fathers, that he would give us a land that flowed with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. And it came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp, till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. That is, it's a rolling away. Gilgal means to roll. And the children of Israel, encamped in Gilgal, kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. You see, it was the spring of the year, the time of the latter rains that this was done. And now they have performed this rite, which had been neglected. The reproach of Egypt was that these people had left off this very important rite, which was the badge of the Abrahamic covenant. The fact of the matter is that God had promised Abraham to give him that land. Now, it has a spiritual message for us today, and that means, very candidly, that the old nature is no good, and the old nature can never inherit the spiritual blessings. In fact, the old nature can't enjoy the spiritual blessings, as we shall see. The old nature won't like Canaan by any means. And doesn't like entering into the heavenlies. And there's that constant war. After Paul gave the sixth of Romans, he gave the seventh of Romans, when there was a war between the old nature and the new nature. And in Galatians he says, For the spirit warreth against the flesh, and the flesh warreth against the spirit. Now, there's no good in the old nature. Paul said that, that he found that there was no good in the old nature. But he also discovered that there's no power in the new nature. That is one of the great lessons that Paul taught us, that there's no power in that new nature. Therefore, they are to be circumcised to recognize that. Now, who's going to give them the victory in the land? Well, God's going to give them the victory. And they must be prepared for that. Now, we'll see as we move along. Now we come to something else that was preparation for them entering the land. Verse 11, "...they did eat of the old corn of the land on the Marah after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self same day. And the manna ceased on the Marah after they had eaten of the old corn of the land, neither had the children of Israel manna any more." But they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The picture is just simply this. Manna was the picture out there in the wilderness of Christ, as we've said. you remember that they came to the Lord Jesus about that same thing over in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John? You remember I dwelt on that quite a bit when we were in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. And we saw at that particular time that Christ was that manna. It's so indicated. This is the thing the Lord Jesus said now. He says in John six forty nine, "...your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die." "...I am the living bread which came down for heaven, if any man eat of this bread he shall live forever, and the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world." Now, the important thing to see is manna represents Christ and his death. It represents that he's the one that came down to give his life, a ransom for many. And that is very important, by the way. That's the bread." But here's old corn, the manna seeds. Now, there are a great many people today, and I want you to hear me now very carefully. There are a great many people today that live on testimonies. Now, there are banquet after banquet, church banquets, Christian organization banquets. And they always have somebody to give a testimony. Well, now, fine, that's good. A testimony is wonderful to give to unsaved people. But my friend, when Christians, all they do is live on testimonies, what are they living on? They're living on manna. They love that. It's exciting food. It's wonderful food. But my friend, if you ever enter into Canaan and lay hold of spiritual blessings, you're going to stop eating manna and you're going to start eating the old corn. You know what the old corn is? It's the Word of God, (laughs) all the way from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books. All of it is the Word of God, and that's old corn. That's what I'm dishing out, old corn. A friend of mine who heard me say that said, yes, he said, the jokes you tell are really old corn. I'll agree with that. Well, friends, very frankly, they are, but the old corn is really the Word of God. And there are a great many people don't like old corn. The children of Israel, they complained about manna. But it really was exciting food. Oh, it was exciting. And you remember we mentioned the fact that Ms. Moses, nothing said about her in particular, but I think maybe she got out a cookbook, Mother Moses' cookbook about how to fix manna. You could fix it about a hundred different ways. It was pretty exciting food. Now, when they got in the lambs, old corn, <laughs> they got tired of that. Let me tell you, old corn, it gets pretty monotonous, especially if you've been eating manna all along. And a great many people today really are not interested in Bible study. I have discovered that it doesn't take them long to get away from Bible teaching. I've seen pastors of churches who've been great Bible teachers, and the Lord's blessed their ministry and teaching the Word of God People say, my, that church is sure anchored to the Word of God. Is it? Well, I'll tell you what I've seen in several instances. I've seen that pastor leave. And just like Moses had gone up to the mountain, he's gone. And the people say, well, our Bible teacher is gone, so let's make us a golden calf. And they start dancing around it. And they start having their church banquets, and they put in new methods and new programs And what happens? They get away from the Word of God. May I say to you, old corn's not as exciting as it could be. But God wanted them to have old corn now and let the manna alone. He's not going to feed them with that any longer. And friends, if you're just living on manna today, you'll never grow up. It'll sustain you in the wilderness. But if you're going to enter into your spiritual blessings, you'll have to start eating the old corn. Many of us need to change our diet today. Then we come to verse 13, "...came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us, or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord am I now come, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth." and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, this really is the call of Joshua, and his commission is right here. And it's the same as Moses got out on the plain of Midian, when the bush appeared that burned and he was told to take off his shoe. Now, I think this man Joshua walked out one morning after they crossed the Jordan River and he looked over the scenery. And I want to tell you, it was impressive. There was the temps of all the 12 tribes all around him. And he looked at it and I think he swelled with a little pride. I'm not sure but what he was like a second lieutenant. My, I tell you, He was one that was in charge of that, and he's the one. And GHQ's in his tent now. He's the leader of this great group, and he is the follower of Moses. He must have felt pretty good. Then he happened to look down at the edge of the camp, and he saw one with a drawn sword. You know who that was? I believe that was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the captain of our salvation. He was the captain. And Joshua, he looked at this one. He said, you know, there's somebody down there that doesn't know that I'm the general here. And I never gave a command for anybody to draw a sword. I better go down there and put that fellow in his place. Let him know who's the general here. So he walked down there. and Well, our translation says, art thou for us or for our adversaries? Now, if you want it in good old Americana, here's what he says. What's the big idea? What's the big idea? Who gave you an order to draw a sword? And then that one turned. And when he turned, he's the pre-incarnate Christ. He says, I'm the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And when Joshua saw him, what happened to him? Well, he fell on his face before him. And you know what Joshua found out? Joshua found out that GHQ wasn't in his tent. It was up yonder was at the throne of God, and God was leading them. And he found out he actually was not the captain of the hosts of the Lord, that he was under someone else. And he'd be taking his orders from someone else, and that he would obey him. And you know, the thing about a soldier is he's to obey the command, those that are above him, the brass. I tell you, he bows before the brass, and he salutes it. And that's what Joshua's learned now to do. Now, I haven't any problem with Joshua when I find him marching around the city of Jericho, which we'll see next time. He went around it seven straight days and on the seventh day seven times. I want to tell you one thing. That was a pretty foolish thing to do, as we're going to see. Now, if you had stopped Joshua on the sixth day and said, Look, Brother Joshua, General Joshua, this is a pretty silly thing. He says, You know, that's what I think. Then why are you doing it? You're in command here. He said, You're wrong. I take my orders in another place. There's someone above me. I just happen to be a buck private in the rear ranks. And I'm taking orders there. And the orders have come from above, and I'm to do this. And you know, it's not my business to question. I'm doing it because I've been commanded to do it. Now, today, our study brings us to the sixth chapter. The children of Israel have now crossed over the Jordan River, and they've entered the land. They've crossed the Jordan in a most remarkable Manor, by the way, you'll recall that the ark went down and the priests carried it, not the Kohathites, but the priests. And they stood in the edge of the Jordan, just get the soles of their feet wet. And then the waters were divided. Actually, this was a greater miracle, I think, than the Red Sea. That is, if you can put miracles in the class of great, greater, and greatest the fact is that, you see, this Jordan River at this time was a Russian torrent. It's a quiet little stream when you're there in summertime. But believe me, during the rainy season, it can be a mighty ocean, by the way. And so it's a dangerous river at flood stage. And now they have crossed over. As Joshua put it here in the last verse of the third chapter, the people were passed clean over Jordan. Of course, he meant by that they all got over. Clean, though, it can be used in another way. They came over through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told that two things happened, two memorial stones, that they took twelve stones, one for each of the tribe, out of the Jordan River where the priests stood, and then they took that up on the west bank of the Jordan, made them a, a monument, a memorial out of it. And it was there to call attention to the future generations of how God had brought them over. It was something for them to go back to and something for them to rest in. And then they took 12 stones from the other side and put them in the Jordan River And then we didn't read this before. It's in the fourth chapter, verse 16. Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony that they come up out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord would come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up under the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned under their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. Now, the ark, of course, speaks of Christ. And they went over. Actually, they went over because he is the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And he's the captain of our salvation. And he's gone over Jordan That is the way that leads into the place of spiritual blessings for us today, the heavenlies. And these two stones, memorial stones, the one in the river that the waters of death went over, speak to us of the death of Christ for your sins and my sins. And the stones taken out of the river of death speak of his resurrection, And when the future generation says what mean these stones, then they were told. It was a commemoration, and it was a communion for the people. We have that today. We call it the Lord's Supper. We meet around the Lord's table, and the bread and the wine speak of the body and blood of Christ. He went down through the waters of death and judgment for you and me, but he came up and mighty resurrection, and it is through his death that you and I enter into spiritual blessings and will finally and ultimately enter heaven. Now, these people camp on the west bank of the Jordan River, and what a glorious, wonderful anticipation waits these people now. This is the land God had promised to give them. It's the land of milk and honey, and it's the land that they are told to possess. Obviously, their hearts are thrilled with it, and what a surge of real anticipation and joy went through the lives of these folk. I'm sure that many of us see there are a lot of faults in our nation, and there are many things that are wrong today, but very candidly, friends... I love my country, and I tell you, I want it preserved. And I'm a squire, I guess. I get a thrill when the flag goes by, and I like to hear the star-spangled banners sung. I don't know. It sort of does something to me. It takes me back to those plains of Texas and the little schoolhouse I went to out there. Takes me to southern Oklahoma, where I lived as a boy, and I fished and hunted over those Arbuckle Mountains, and I, to this day, when I get an opportunity, as I did recently, got on the train with my wife, and we came down from Kansas City to Fort Worth, Texas, and that train goes right through the Arbuckle Mountains. I don't know, nostalgia does something to me, and Then I go to Nashville, Tennessee, where I lived, and then I go to the places where I went to college and then to seminary. I go to Atlanta, Georgia, and I go to Dallas, Texas, and Memphis, Tennessee. These are the places, and they still, in my mind and heart, there's a thrill to think of them. I love my country, I love my nation, and I'm sorry that We are trying to be a world power today and tell the world how they ought to do it. May I say to you, we're not doing it so well, and we've gotten away from the book. I don't feel like I should go out on a vendetta to try to straighten out the country. I don't think you can straighten out a system when the men who are running it are wrong. The only thing today that's going to be helpful is a return to the Word of God. Now, God prepared his people for entering that land. I have in my notes and outlines for chapter 5, Condition for Conquest. And there are three important things there. That was circumcision. You remember, Joshua made sharp knives. What does those sharp knives speak of? They speak to me of the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide. It's able to make a distinction. All the lines are rubbed out in morality in this country today. They're still black and white in the Word of God. And we need to get back to Bible morality today. Because there's no blessing for this nation or a people until they come back to the Word of God. And so here there had to be the use of the sharp knife and the right of circumcision, that which was the token of the covenant God made with Abraham. And part of that covenant was they were to have that land. How important, friends. Then they were given now the old corn. And again, that's the word of God. They no longer eat manna. Manna's thrilling food. My, the people today who love to go to prophetic congresses, I teach prophecy a great deal, but very frankly... A great many people are interested in the Book of Revelation, who are not interested in the Epistle to the Romans. That something is true. Doctor A. C. Gable I and I went to see him when he was out here for his last trip and stayed here in Pasadena. I went down to visit him, and he asked me how I liked Southern California, and I said the thing that disturbs me. There are many people out here that'll cross Southern California to hear a message on the red horses in the book of Revelation and how many hairs are in the red horse's tail. They're interested in that. But I said they're not interested in going across the street to hear the epistle to the Romans given. And he said to me in his broken accent, he said, Brother McGee, you're going to find that a great many of the saints are more interested in Antichrist than they are Christ. Well, you see, they're like manna. But we need to come in out of the wilderness and eat the old corn of the land. If I may use a little propaganda, we need to go through the Bible, friends, and find out what it's all about. It's one thing to say you believe it. It's another thing to go through. And then Joshua was given the vision of the captain of the hosts of the Lord and now he's going to take orders from above. These people are conditioned now for conquest. We're going to see them now move in. The capture of Jericho. Now, we see a certain tactic that this man Joshua used. It's very important to see that, by the way. We see that the Attack that he made was through the center of the land. He divided it, in other words, by taking the city of Jericho and also the city of Ai. And then having divided it, he moved into the south and then made a big mistake in making a compact with the Gibeonites. And then there were the five kings of the Amorites that he had to conquer because of that. Then we have the campaign that he carried on in the north, and you have the conclusion of Joshua's leadership in the war. Then you have the list of the conquered kings given, and then the last part of the book has to do with the land divided and the last message of Joshua. Now we come back to the conquest of Jericho, and there actually were three very important campaigns here at the beginning. There was Jericho and Ai and the Gibeonites. Now, these were the enemies that stood in the way when they entered the land that must be conquered. And what was the method, and how did he do it, and why did he do it, and what is the message for us? Now, let me say that you and I today have three enemies as believers. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in Jericho, you see the world. In Ai, you see the flesh. In the Gibeonites, the devil. They made a compact. They subtly came. They used subtlety. And we're told, even back in the Garden of Eden, that the serpent was more subtle than any. That's the method always of Satan. He never makes a frontal attack. He always comes in the side door even the back door. Actually, the enemy today doesn't really attack the Word of God. Satan's too clever right now to make a frontal attack on the Word of God. He is attacking the man who believe and teach the Word of God today. I marvel at that. Believe me, we're not ignorant of his devices. Now you have here this first enemy, the city of Jericho. And we're going to see a very unusual method that's used. And by the way, the methods that were used in these different cities and the way he conquered Jericho that represents the world and Ai the flesh and the Gibeonites, the devil, the thing is that the method used there is our method today. And we need to note it very carefully, by the way. Now, this method of dividing the land was a method that I think has been followed by all of the great generals from that day down to the present, is to divide a people or divide the enemy and then take them piecemeal. That was the method that was used in World War I. It was used in World War II in both Europe and in the Pacific. This is the method that was used in the Civil War. General Lee attempted to break the back of the North by going into Pennsylvania. He did not succeed. And then we find that the North came down through Nashville and Chattanooga, and at Missionary Ridge, they broke the back of the South right there. They paid an awful price in human lives by doing it. It was a slaughter, but that was the thing they felt was essential, and it was, and that's the method that now Joshua used. But as far as his method and his tactic was concerned, his overall tactic, that's fine. But his method for taking these individual places, by the way, are not to be followed. I wouldn't think that his method at Jericho would be the method used today. Now notice verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. Now Jericho was prepared for them, but they didn't think they'd be over quite so soon. But now the city shut up, prepared for the attack. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof, the mighty men of valour. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days, and seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. Now the day came for the beginning of the campaign. The city of Jericho is prepared. There are the soldiers on the walls, the watchman is there over the gate, and the staff, the brass, military brass is down in the city, and they're getting reports from the wall. And finally, the word comes, here come the enemy, and here comes Joshua now, and the army of the children of Israel, but leading it was the ark, carried by the priests, and they have these horns, and here they come. And the watchman on the wall says, here they come. Let's get ready. They apparently are going to make attack at the gate. And so they bring all their forces there on the inside. And their forces there, they are ready for an attack if they break the gate down. But you know, a very strange thing happens. And so the watchman calls down. He says, they're not going to attack here. They've made a right face. And they are going around the wall, looks like. They're apparently going to make an attack at another place. So this army on the inside, they ship. They march around on the inside, I think. They go along the wall, and they are informed by those on the wall. They are here, they're here, they're here. And they go all the way around, and instead of attacking, they go back into camp. And you could be sure of one thing. There was a huddle that night of the king and the military brass. I tell you, the staff that night met in the Pentagon to see what in the world they were going to do, and they wondered about it. They really a puzzle. So the next day, we have a repeat performance. The watchman on the wall says, here they come, and here they come. Round the wall they go, and then they depart. They do that for six days, and by the six days, I want to tell you that midnight oil has been burned long and late in the... Pentagon inside of Jericho, and that army on the inside, they're pretty tired of marching around on the inside. Maybe the children of Israel were, and some of them are saying, this looks pretty foolish. I'm not sure, but what if you'd asked Joshua and said, General Joshua, don't you think this is a rather absurd thing you're doing? He said, sure is. Well, he says, why are you doing it? You're the general. He said, you just think I am. I'm taking orders from the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And this is the way he says, do it. And this is the way I'm going to do it. And they do that six days. And on the seventh day, here they come again. And they make the circuit around the wall. The army inside makes the circuit. And everybody heaves a sigh of relief when they get around. And they begin to sit down to rest. And all of a sudden, the watchman says, wait a minute. They're going around again. And so they make that circuit around again. And they did it the third time. They did it the fourth time. They went around seven times. The priests blew the trumpets. The walls of Jericho fell down. Notice verse 5. It shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And we're told in verse 20, so the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Now, I had the privilege of going to Jericho with a very special Arab guide who had worked with both Sir Charles Marston and Miss Kellum in their diggings there at ancient Jericho. Now, very candidly, this man who'd worked with both of them, you may or may not know that these two disagreed as to the dates of the wall. But it had fallen down, and it was down flat. That was obvious. The facts are there. They disagree as to dates. I asked this man what he thought. Well, he went along with Sir Charles Marston, and his reasoning was this. He said, when he got here... He was not probably scientific, and he didn't do quite the job that Miss Kellum did. It's true. But he said, you see, he was the first one here. And the very fact he did it that way, he disturbed everything so that it would be impossible for anyone coming later to come up with an accurate estimation. And he said, I feel like Sir Charles Marston is probably accurate as to the dates. Well, I'll let them argue that. All I'm interested in is a poor preacher. The Word of God says the wall fell down flat, and it's over there today. It fell down flat. You know, I somehow or another think that the Word of God is accurate about this. But now notice the method. There's a song, you know, that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And the question is, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't fight at all. You see, he just marched around the city. Who did the fighting? God did that, friends. And I think it's perfectly ridiculous for the explanation to come up to say that an earthquake took place at that psychological moment when they blew the trumpet and that took the walls down. I think maybe there was an earthquake, but don't think it was a natural one. And then there are those that say the constant marching of the children of Israel around the wall loosened the wall and it fell down. Well, you can believe that one if you want to. I like it the way it's told. God did this. God got the victory. They got possession, my friend. Now, what was the method used? The method that was used is faith. And that's the way that you and I are going to get the victory over the world. The reason I'm not interested in running up the American flag every time on this program is just simply because, friends, I don't think you're to fight the enemy. You can't fight the world and win. How do you overcome the world? Listen to John in 1 John 5, 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. How? And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Friends, it's only by faith. Joshua won the battle. No, he didn't. Joshua fit the battle. No, he didn't either fight it nor win it. He got possession. God did that. He believed God. He took orders from him. And you know that I think that the great problem that many believers have today is that they are trying to fit the battle of Jericho and overcome the world today. We need to start taking orders from the captain up yonder today, the captain of our salvation. Now, we add two things. They save Rahab and her family here. They did that. Also, Joshua pronounced a curse on anyone who'd rebuild that city. And we'll see that later on when we get over to 1 Kings 16, it was rebuilt. And the man who did it, the curse came upon him and his sons. That was in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. We'll see that, of course, later on. Now we have the conquest of Ai here in 7 and 8. But it was failure at first, and there's a reason for that failure. Now, will you notice? "...but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel." Now, I'd have you note that, because I think that is very important to see. And it says the children of Israel committed a trespass. But who did it? It was Achan. You see, the whole nation had to suffer because of the sin of this one man. That is something that is quite interesting. But today, a great many people stand on the outside and criticize the church. And they talk about the failure of the church and the apostasy. I do. But my friend. Standing on the outside and doing nothing about it is one thing. If the church today is in apostasy, and it is, and if the church today is failing, and it is, then you and I are implicated in this. We're members of the church. One member suffer, Paul says, all the members suffer. And today we need to recognize that. Now, one member of the children of Israel committed an awful thing. He disobeyed. There's more involved than meets the eye, by the way. And as a result, why, the whole nation suffered because of it. Now, how did they? Notice what happened. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the man went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua. And they said unto him, Let not all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. Now, Ai represents the flesh. Ai represents the flesh, friends. And it's quite interesting today. There are some saints that are marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. They talk about that they're separated Christians. And they tell you what they don't do. They don't go to this, and they don't do that. In fact, they do a spiritual striptease. They take off everything. They're as negative as anybody could be. Oh, we don't do this. We don't do that. Well, thank God you don't do it, friends. But a great many people, they rejoice at Jericho. They've overcome the world. But what about the flesh? And many of these super-duper saints, and I meet some of them, and I want to say this, and I want to say it kindly, but I want to say it it needs to be said. The most dangerous people in the church I've met are the super-duper saints. My, I tell you, they don't do this, they don't do that. And they say, oh, Dr. McGee, you shouldn't say things like that. And I indulge in a few of the cliches of the day and use pretty strong language, and, oh, they get shocked at it. I'm more afraid of those folk because why? They talk about they've overcome the world, but they haven't overcome it, AI. They've been defeated there. And some of them have the meanest tongues. And some of them will do the dirtiest things you can imagine. Oh, I could tell you a story today if I wanted to. I tell you, I know the saints. See, I was a pastor 40 years And I met quite a few of them. And I love these genuine folk, you know, that are real. Not that super-duper crowd. You see, the flesh has a great many people in tow. And they think they're living. In fact, they talk about living the victorious life. And believe me, they don't even know what it is. The victorious life is his life, friends. He's the one got the victory. We don't get the victory. We haven't anything to speak of. Now, you see, they're in the flush of victory. They have overcome Jericho. Oh, they didn't. God did it, but they thought they did. Before long, they're thinking they did it. Now, these men go up and look at Ai, and they say, Ai is nothing compared to to Jericho. Well, you know, Ai was so small that I looked at it through binoculars and we didn't even go up to it. Just a little old place, you know, doesn't amount to anything. And a great many people think that they've overcome the flesh and they haven't. They are pretty good as far as overcoming the world. Now, what happened? Verse 4, So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shabarim, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, the very interesting thing here is they're defeated. The flesh has defeated them, and they were victorious at Jericho. Why? Because of the fact they're not using the tactics that God gives them. You can't use the same tactics to overcome the flesh that you do to overcome the world. Now, they didn't recognize their weakness. The problem today with a great many is they do not know their weakness. Paul learned that he says, I know that within me there dwelleth no good thing. Have you found that out? friend, Christian friend? Have you found out that there's no strength, no power in you whatsoever? You cannot live the Christian life. And I have news for you. God never asks you to. God would like to live it through you. And in the seventh of Romans, you see a man that discovered there's no good thing in the old nature. And he found out something else. He says, to will is present with me. But how to perform it, I find now. And he even found out there's no power in the new nature. The will. The new nature wants to live for God, but it doesn't have the power to. So in the 8th of Romans, the Holy Spirit is brought in. And it's only, friends, when we're filled by the Holy Spirit of God. And we're going to see here how that's done. Now, what happens here? They're defeated at Ai. And notice Joshua. And Joshua ran his clothes, fell to the earth upon his face, before the ark of the Lord unto the eventide, he and the elders of Israel. And he put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan." The fact of the matter is that I think we've heard this little song before. These are the blues that he's singing, and he learned them out in the wilderness because that's what the people out there sang. But Joshua didn't sing them then, but now he can't understand why he's lost the battle. And he rents his clothes, and he cries out. Now listen to him. "'O Lord, what shall I say?' when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Now listen, listen to the Lord. And this is getting right down to the nitty-gritty with a lot of us today. Listen to it. The Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? And I say, he says to this man, Joshua, he says, get up off your face and cut up all this whining and in sackcloth and ashes before me. And a lot of Christians today spend their time whining before the Lord. Won't do you any good. God says, get up off your face. That's not the solution to your problem. Great many people. People talk about fasting and praying, and they have disheveled hair. I remember when I was a student in seminary that the women got a notion that the way to be spiritual was to be unkempt, to wear a dirty dress and uh, not go to the beauty parlor and have your hair fixed, and you go around with a long face, and that means you're spiritual. And believe me, were they a bunch of gossips in that day. My you know, the president of the seminary, he called the women in one day, the wives of the seminary students. And he said, now, look here. <laughs> you go to the beauty parlor. says, some of you look horrible. You look terrible. You're not spiritual at all. And this is not spirituality. Paul Joshua gets down there, rends his clothes, throws ashes all over him. He was a mess. And he's the general, by the way. Now, what does God say? He says, get thee up. Uh, Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. Friends, let's get right down to the nitty-gritty. What's your problem and my problem today? Now, I don't know you, but I know your problem. Sin is your problem. Oh, you say, I'm a saint of God. I'm a super-duper saint. I am the chairman of the board of deacons. Oh, you are? Now, what does that make you? That makes you a bigger sinner And the rest of them, why don't you deal with the sin that's in your life, Christian friend? That's the thing that's important. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the cursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they put it even among their own stuff. You know, Joshua didn't know that. He didn't have the spiritual discernment that was in the early church. You remember when Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied, believe me, the Spirit of God brought that out immediately. And the early church was very sensitive to that sort of thing. But they're not very sensitive here. In fact, they're not sensitive at all. Now, I won't read all of this here, but what they had to do, they took the tribes. God says, sins in the camp, you'll have to deal with it. And so they take all the tribes, and they march through. And finally, the tribe is taken, and we find that the tribe of Judah was guilty. And then they sent that tribe through, and they found out that it was the family of the Zerhites. And then they had that family go through, and we find that Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man, and... What happened? Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. They had to go through all this procedure to ferret out the thing that was wrong. And it's very difficult today to distinguish evil in the church. I think that church members are more blind to evil in their own communion than any place else. Oh boy, they can see it when it's down yonder at a nightclub or in a liquor store fact, some man is a thief in politics, they sure can find evil there, but they can't find it when it's in their own assembly, in their own church, in their own group, my friend. How tragic that is today. Now, notice what happened. Verse 19, And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. Now, listen to this. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. All right, let's get the thus and thus down in facts and figures. Let's make a list. Now, notice what he says. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Notice the steps of this man's sin. I saw, I coveted, and I took them. Those are the steps of the sin of the flesh today. I saw something, I coveted it, and then I took it. That is the thing back of gossip today. Why is it people criticize someone else? Well, it's envy and jealousy there. There are those that cause strife today just because that it builds up their own ego. It calls attention to them. It makes them look better than the person that they're criticizing. That's the reason that sometimes you find a board will criticize their pastor. You know why? Puts them in better light. Why is it that the members will sometimes criticize Sunday school superintendent or a board member? Puts them in a better light, you see. This is the old sin of the flesh. I saw, I coveted, and I took. That's the way it goes. Now, what does this man do? He confesses. And he lays it right out. Now, what is this for the believer? How are you going to overcome the flesh, friends? You are going to have to deal with sin in your life. You can't have fellowship with him. Now, I go back again to 1 John. You'll remember that we saw that's the way to overcome the world is by faith. But that's not the way that you overcome the flesh. How do you overcome the flesh? Well... First of all, we want to have fellowship with him. And we want to be filled by the Holy Spirit that we might serve him. Now, how are we going to have fellowship with him? How are we going to have power in our lives? Well, he makes it very clear the way you can't do it. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Just to say you are having fellowship with him and living in sin, you're not kidding anybody. And you're certainly not having fellowship with him, and you know it. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that is the light of the Word of God again, we have fellowship one with another. And what happens? Well, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Now, suppose, though, we say we have no sin. What do we do? Well, we're deceiving ourselves. Truth's not in us. But what are we to do if we confess our sins? You see, you can't bring God down to your low level. And friends, you can't bring yourself up to God's level. So the thing to do is to keep the communication open between you and God. And the only way you can do it is by confessing your sins. Now, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Now, I didn't say this. You know, I'm very polite. I wouldn't say it. But if you say today that you have not sinned or you haven't sinned in your life, God says you're a liar. John says you're a liar. I don't say it. They say it. And I have a notion. They're accurate about it, by the way. What are we to do? Confess our sins. And how are we to do it? Well, not this thus and thus have I done. Spell it out. As this man did, I saw it. A Babylonish garment. And tell God everything that's in your heart. Just open it up. You just well do. He already knows anyway. The Lord Jesus knows you. Go and confess it all. One time I heard Mel Trotter tell this story. He said that his board in Grand Rapids at the mission there met every Saturday morning for a meeting, and then they closed with prayer. He said the chairman of his board was a very fine doctor in the town. And the doctor had a way when he prayed. He said, Lord, if we have sinned, forgive us our sin. And Maltrata got tired of listening to that. Finally went to the doctor, and he said to him, listen, doc. He says, you say, if you've sinned, don't you know whether you have or not? Well, the doctor says, I guess I do. Well says, Don't you know what your sin is? No, the doctor says I don't know what it is. Well, Melkrotter said to him, says, Guess at it then. And he said, You know, the very next time he guessed at it and he hit it the very first time. You know it's amazing, friends, that we like to be around the bush even in our praying. Just go to God and tell him exactly what it is. That's confession of sin, and there can be no joy in your life. There can be no power in your life. And we talk about victory. There'll be no victory there until there is confession made of sin. Now notice what happens here. Verse 25 And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, burned them with fire. After they'd stoned them with stones, And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of the place was called the valley of Achor unto this day. Now, this seems to be very serious, you see. This is the thing that is emphasized for believers, actually, in the New Testament. Now, over in the 8th of Romans, Paul says... "...for if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live." And that means you'll live as sons of God. You're not living, friends. There are a lot of Christians that are not even living. As Dwight L. Moody put it in his quaint way, some people have just enough religion to make them miserable. And there are a lot of miserable saints today. And we are to deal with these things that are in our lives. Paul says if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. God has to step in, and he will judge us. And his judgment sometimes is pretty serious. You are listening to a preacher today that can tell you because he knows what the judgment of God is in his own life. Now, God will judge you, friends. And you can complain all you want to. And I have news for you. It won't do you a better good to complain, you can whine like Joshua didn't throw ashes all over your head. Won't help you a bit. thing to do is to go to him and get this miserable thing straightened out. And then to experience the joy of the Lord. Therefore, we're told, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Death must come, friends, upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. What's your sin today? Go and confess it. And confession means you deal with it, friends. When you confess, it means you turn from it. Because we're told that it's by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing he wants to do in our lives. Now, that brings us to chapter 8, and we have here the conquest of Ai. We are told, the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee. Don't think you can send 2,000 up there and get a victory. The flesh is a real enemy. The biggest enemy that you have is your flesh. Is you, by the way. The biggest enemy I have is Vernon McGee. And you need all the resources of God to get the victory. And we're told, go up to Ai. I've given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city. Thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey for yourselves. Why didn't they take it in Jericho? Because, my friend, those people we know today were eaten up with venereal disease. God says, Don't touch that Babylonian garment. Don't take that wedge of gold. You let that dirty, filthy stuff alone. Joshua didn't know about disease germs, but God did. They're given a victory in AI. And AI represents the flesh. And from this, we get a great spiritual lesson. First of all, there must be a recognition of the enemy and the potential. We must recognize that the enemy is this flesh. The greatest enemy that you and I have is with you right now, and that's yourself. A great many people like to blame the devil. I hear people say, and a comedian uses, the devil made me do it. Well, he didn't. It's that flesh of yours that is responsible. We need to recognize our enemy, their flesh. And then we need to examine very carefully The reasons for our defeat, and many of us are defeated because of the very fact that we are not willing to admit defeat. It's shameful, it's ignoble, it's humiliating, and we don't want to acknowledge it. But the reasons for our defeat is primarily because of our dependence upon our own ability. You see, Joshua, a spy said to him, Why, you don't need but 2,000 men? Easy to overcome, A.I. We think that the flesh be easy to overcome, and we depend upon ourselves to do it. And we have to come to the place Paul did, O wretched man that I am. He was losing the destruction. Now, there was a defection in the camp of Israel. And prayer has its place. But when you and I come around, God sniveling and whining. And how many times you and I did what Joshua did, come just like that. And it's many Christians today marching around Jericho blowing trumpets at the same time, and they are suffering a glaring defeat in AI. I'm a separated Christian. I wouldn't touch a cocktail, but are you filled with the Spirit? Do you have the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Then they say, well, I wouldn't be caught dead in a movie. You wouldn't? What about the works of the flesh in your life? There are those that say, my, I tell you, I would never smoke a cigarette. Fire on the end of a cigarette? Never. But how about the fire that's on the end of your tongue? The fire of jealousy and envy and strife and division. There are others that say, I would never use makeup. I wouldn't paint my lips. But are your lips red with gossip? You know that we need to recognize we are shoddy and shabby saints and that many of us are putting up a front. Now, I know there are not many that talk like this on radio or in the pulpit today because it's not popular. Prophecy is very popular. Or to talk about how good we are. But my friend, we need to recognize today our reasons for our defeat by the enemy. And then the resources God provides to overcome the enemy. And first of all, there's a war to be fought. The Spirit warreth against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit. And we need to recognize that the only way that we can overcome is through the Spirit of God. And then Christ died a judgment death that was against our sin nature, and he says, "They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affection and lust." Galatians 5:24. When did we do that? Did that 1900 years when Christ died? That is the basis for our overcoming the flesh, and we can only do it in the power of the Spirit. That's important to see. Now when we come to the thirtieth verse of the eighth chapter of Joshua, we find that after this victory, that Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. And then also Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up an iron, and they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord, sacrifice, peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones, a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. Now, we find that what they did was what Moses commanded. They read from Mount Ebal and from Mount Gerizim, the curses and the blessings. Verse 34, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read, not before all the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them, those that could understand their language. And as a result, why, we have here the entire law of Moses that was read. They had a through-the-Bible program, you see. They didn't read part of it, they read all of it. Now, in chapter 9, we come here to another very important section, and we have here the league with the Gibeonites. Now, they were south of Jerusalem, and we see the southern campaign. Now, they were very clever, these Gibeonites, and I want you to notice that, and let me read here at this particular place. It came to pass when all the kings which were on this side Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, including the electric light, by the way, heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. Now, there was a group there, one group. They wanted to be smart, and their thought was not to fight, but uh, make a compact. And therefore, this war in the south. Now, you see, he's divided the land, and now he's moved south. And the Gibeonites, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and unto Ai, they said, well, we won't fight them. And they were next in line, by the way. They were around Jerusalem. And we read, "...they did work wilily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors. And they took old sacks upon their asses, and wine bottles, old and rent, and bound up, and old shoes, and clouted upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry." and molded. They went to Joshua under the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We become from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. Now the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? They said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye? Friends, come ye. And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants have come because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. You see, they're a bunch of liars. They are working cleverly, you see. They live right there in the land, right around Jerusalem. And they act as if they've come from a far country. They say now they really want to worship the living and true God. And they mention the fact they call attention if it hasn't been noticed, While we took victuals for our journey, and we had on new clothes, and look at them now. Our bread now, we took hot for our provision out of our own houses, on the way we came forth to go unto you. And now, behold, it's dry, it's moldy, and so on. Look at our clothes. Oh, boy, are they clever. And you know what happened? Joshua fell for it, and he made a compact with them. Now, a treaty was honored in that day, although made under these circumstances. A man's word was pretty important. You see, they were rather uncivilized in those days. But they pretended to come from the outside. Now, Joshua was told to make no treaty with the people in the land. And so they used this very clever ruse. And now, you remember, Jericho represents the world. How do you overcome the world? By faith. AI represents the flesh. How do you overcome the flesh? By fighting it? No, you can't overcome by fighting it because you're not able to. you to recognize your weakness and to go in confession and let the Spirit of God get the victory. Was God now said, I'm going to give you AI. Now these Gibeonites, they represent the devil. And what are we told to do today? Back to Ephesians for... Ephesians in the New Testament corresponds to Joshua in the Old Testament, you see. And I'm reading now Ephesians 6, verse 11. "...put on the whole armor of God, that she may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil." Now, the Gibeonites, they work wily. They should beware of the wiles of the Gibeonites, but they didn't, and "...we are told today that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities." These are spiritual now. "...against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." This is our enemy today. We do not have a flesh and blood enemy. We have a spiritual enemy, and that's Satan." And how many Christians even recognize him? And what does he do? I don't think he's interested in getting you on pot, my friend. I'm not sure that he's interested in wanting to make a drunkard out of you. I don't think that he works down in the bar rooms and in the sinful places of the world. I think he's ashamed of that crowd They're His, he's a little ashamed of them. He went to church last Sunday. And he'll be there next Sunday, by the way. He wants to be religious. The devil does, provided you fall down and worship him. And there's a lot of that today. He works wildly. We need to be very careful. How many Christians are taken in? I am amazed at the stupidity of the saints. They're taken in by every ruse that's imaginable. And that which is standing for the Word of God for some strange reason. They stand and question it all the time, and yet they're taken in on every hand. A man was telling me about certain programs he supported, the reason he couldn't support mine. Well, naturally, I'm a little selfish about this matter. I feel like I'd like to have people support the Word of God. But, you know, he mentioned a couple of rackets, religious rackets, and he supports them. But he can't support mine because he's supporting them. By the way, he didn't question mine, but he just said he was doing this. The only thing I did, I said, have you investigated these? Oh, he's heard them on the air. I would say that you'd need to do investigating. That's what I say to folk about our program, that we actually are trying to teach the Word of God. How important that is, friend. The devil, he can pull a wool over our eyes. And you remember, Paul says, we're not ignorant of his devices. Well, aren't we a little ignorant of his devices? Well, let me turn over, if you don't mind, to a passage of Scripture over in James 4, seven. Now, what are we to do? How can you overcome the devil, by the way? Listen to this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil And he'll flee from you. And that's James 4, 7. My friend, we need to submit ourselves to God. That's the first thing. We need to get close to him today. Oh, how we need to get close to him today. Submit yourself, therefore, to God, but resist the devil. And the thing to do is to have nothing to do with that which you do not know anything about. There's a danger of being linked up with him today. Somebody says, how in the world do all of these survive, these different religious rackets, even in churches? How do they survive? They survive, my friends, because God's people are supporting them, and they're supporting them because they're not resisting the devil. Why we go to church with him, I'm afraid, sometimes. This is very important to see. Now, the children of Israel, this is the one time they really lost. And it got them involved in a very difficult situation. Chapter 10. This is the long day of Joshua. I'm reading verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai, had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem sent unto Hoham king of Hebron, Pyram king of Jarmuth, and Jephiah king of Lachish, and unto Deber king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, and so on, and they went to make war against Gibeon. And what did Gibeon do? Verse 6, The men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp of Gilgad, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. Now, verse 9, Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. A sudden attack, a surprise attack. And that's a good military tactic. Now he's using military tactics, but you see what's happening. Verse 12, Then spake Joshua to the Lord, in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. There was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened under the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, the question has always been about the long day of Joshua. And it's been questioned a great deal, and all kinds of explanations have been offered concerning it. Let me mention some of the explanations that are given. I noticed that one Christian organization that works on college campuses, they avoid giving any interpretation of it. Then there's another interpretation, and that's that this is poetic language, and it's a poetic expression. It's not to be taken literal. It's non-literal. And they refer, of course, to the stars fought against Sisera, that's mentioned in Judges 5.20. And when we get there, we'll find out the stars did fight. It's literal. Now, another explanation that's offered, that it's a miracle of refraction. The sun stood still, the moon stayed. It was a matter of refraction, a matter of a reflection, you see. And they use verse 13 here. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, hasted not to go down about a whole day. And then another explanation is that God stopped the entire solar system. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, thou moon, in the valley of Agilon. And that is the explanation I take. But we need to note something else. Actually, God blacked out the sun You must remember that the American Standard Version here says that the sun became silent, which actually means that what this man Joshua wanted was not more sunshine. He wanted less sunshine. And the Berkeley translation has it, O sun, wait in Gibeon. And you'll notice that it was covered over with a great deal of, well, I was going to say smog, but covered over, and it didn't come through. Because, after all, the heat's 112 degrees in that land at this time of the year. And actually, Joshua did not want more sun. He wanted less sun. And I believe that the correct explanation is, therefore, that God actually stopped the solar system. But he also cut down the heat of the sun. That, I believe, is the explanation of it, the way that it really took place. Now, let's look in that for just a moment. With 105 to 120 in the shade, and there was no shade, Joshua didn't want more sunshine, and God covered the sun. Hailstones came down. It was not the rainy season. And you look at the record upon Gibeon, that was directly over. And we believe that the explanation is that God actually did this, because this is the way that it happened. And God gave the victory to Joshua. Our book, Have You Crossed Over Jordan, if there are those of you who have not received it and would like to have it, would write in for it. We'd like to send it to you. And in that, we have a chapter on AI and I, the flesh. We have that because we think that's a very important thing because so many Christians think that they're living a spiritual life because they've overcome the world, that is, they... Don't participate in things in the world. Well, you can be the meanest saint in the world and not go to many of these things that are worldly, friends, because the flesh has overcome you. Actually, our greatest enemy is the flesh. Now, we have to restrict this book to those who support the program. And friends, it must be that way, because actually we wouldn't be on the air very long if the books were given away. But notes and outlines, they come to you. Now, we want to pass on from this long day of Joshua, and I think this is a remarkable incident, now corroborated in time and space, by the way, which makes it indeed interesting. And the question arises, as I've heard it put by a certain college professor, he says it's ridiculous that God would stop the entire universe for one man, (laughs) Yes, may I say to you, friends, it is ridiculous that he'd do it. But the interesting thing is, he did it. And he sent his son into the world. And that's much more wonderful than stopping the son. That for God just demonstrated his wisdom and his power. But to send his son into the world. Now, that's asking a great deal. Not only to come into this world among men. But to die upon a cross, and to die for you, and if you were the only person in this world, he'd have died for you. May I say to you, maybe the professor wants to say that's ridiculous, and it is, but we have another word for it, and that's, "...by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourself." It's the gift of God. Or, there's still another word, "...God so loved the world." and. That's the basis of it all, that he gave his only begotten son, and man's response is faith, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Now we're told in verse 15, And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda, And it was told, Joshua saying, "...the five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda." Joshua said, "...roll great stones from the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand." Now let's remember that these are a people that were given 420 years to make up their mind of whether they'd turn to God or not. God had the report out that he was going to give it to the nation Israel, and he would have saved anyone that would have turned to him. And he told them that they had to stay out of the land for 420 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. And then when they crossed the Red Sea, we see another reason for God bringing them as he did across the Red Sea, not only for the nation Israel's sake, to demonstrate his redemption through power and as he had by blood in Egypt that last night when the angel passed over when the blood was on the doorpost, not only to impress Egypt and convince them that there was the living and true God amidst all the idols of Egypt, but also these people in the land, for that harlot Rahab said, we've heard how God led you across the Red Sea. She believed. Now, if that woman believed, anybody could have believed God. And these are those that did not, in judgments coming upon them. Now, that message has never been changed. God loves the world. God loves you. But he gave his son that whosoever, and that means you, means me, that will believe on him. What about it? Well, they won't perish. Well, will you perish if you don't? Yes. That's what happened to these folks. They just didn't believe God. Now, that may not sound nice to you, and you'd like to have it otherwise. But this is the way it's written in the Word of God. And friends, it's certainly going to be bad if the Bible is accurate. And then I have news for you. It is accurate. Now, will you notice verse 24? When they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of a good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fought. Now, this was a very impressive array of kings, and they were enemies that 40 years before that had caused the spies to go back and say, we just can't enter that land. We'd never be able to take it. Now, this is done by Joshua to strengthen the heart of these people. They were frightened folk. When you talk about the bravery of these people, wasn't any bravery at all. I remember hearing the whimsical story of World War I, when a certain hero of that war who had captured more German prisoners than any other, and he was being feeded by some of the society folk in Nashville, Tennessee. One dear dowager that she wanted to make conversation, and she was as talkative as she possibly could be, and she said to him, calling him by his name and giving his rank, and said to him, "'What was your feeling when you brought all those soldiers in?' <laughs> he says, "'I was scared to death.'" <laughs> May I say to you, that was the condition of these people. Now, God wants to encourage them, you see. Now, afterward, Joshua smote them, slew them, hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. "...came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. They took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day." You see, they could have left them in that cave with the rocks there and starved them to death. It was much more humane to slay them as they did, And they didn't dare turn these kings loose. They had no prison they could put them in. And so this was the disposition that had to be made of the enemy in that day. Now, we are living in a day when we think we are more civilized. But when you think of the bombing, the war in Vietnam, and World War II, the Korean War, and you think of the different lawlessness that's taking place in our land, Why, my friend, I don't think that you're in a position to criticize this incident here. They didn't have lawlessness, and they're settling their problems in a only way that you can settle them with a sinful, wicked race that if these kings had been turned loose, they would have led a rebellion against Joshua that would have caused literally thousands to die. Verse 27, that they hanged them, we're told, and they took them down off the tree. Why? Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. They didn't leave them there overnight. Why did they hang them up? They apparently had stoned them. Well, because when it was an awful crime, that's what they did in Israel. And that's the reason that the Lord Jesus, he was not stoned, as you know. He was crucified. They took him down. Why? Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He bore the curse for you and me." This is a tremendous chapter, by the way. And then we find that Joshua now in the south is moving all the way down to Hebron and Deber. And we read in verse 41, "...and Joshua smote them from Kadesh, Barnea even unto Geza." And that is way down, as you know, way over on the coast. And this is in the south of the land and all the country of Goshen, even unto Gibeon. And all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. That is very important to see, that he is the one giving them the victory. They are getting possession. And today the victory is Christ. I do not go for this expression the victorious life, the victorious life is his life lived in us. We get blessed with all spiritual blessings. We get spiritual blessings. The possession, he gets the victory. There's going to be a victory, by the way.